grapevine that there was a uh, half a donut, empty tomb, donut hole, roll away the stone scenario unfolding, um, which is classy. So that's kind of the way we roll. We like it. So empty tombs, half a donut, roll the donut hole away, and you get Jesus in there. So uh, that's happening downstairs, which is very cool. So a lot of fun. We are uh, glad you're here this morning, like I mentioned. For those of you that are uh, have been coming for a while, you will know that we are kind of 23 weeks into a 13-year study of the book of Acts, and um, we are going to take a break today. So we're going to take a break and take a deep breath and lift our heads up a little bit and do something a little kind of different today, uh, kind of exploring Easter from a, a different standpoint. A few days prior to um, the typical Easter scenario where the, the women run to the tomb and the stones rolled away and kind of all that, and take a look from a little different angle. Now, I mentioned this last year, I'm going to mention it again this year, um, because if you are here for the, us with the first time or you're here for, with us for the first time, I want you to lower your expectations. Now, I say that because I got an email this week that had a list, a creative marketing kind of website, sent out a list of churches in our area, Dallas, all the way to Wichita, that were doing creative things for Easter. And I started looking at that list and thinking, man, we are, we got a long way to go. So there were a lot of very cool, like, Easter egg drops from helicopters. One church in Tulsa was dropping 17,000 Easter eggs from a helicopter on Saturday that had coupons, right? This is what it said, had coupons and gift cards. So, what are you, a dollar off a subway coming up? And I don't know, but maybe it works for them. 17,000 eggs. One church was doing a glow stick sunrise service with rave music to draw a younger crowd in for Easter. It's cool, I guess. I don't really know what those words mean, but it seemed kind of cool. Uh, one church was actually releasing kind of during service. They had a big backdrop built uh, of the first century Palestine, and they had live lambs wandering around the service, which is really cool until you until they start going to the bathroom and you have kids, and that's all they remember. Do you remember that time that the sheep pooped in service? That was really funny. Like, that's what's going on. But they had that. And then there was one that had Chinese acrobats that were performing while the pastor preached as a demonstration of God's grace and beauty. And I thought, how do you even find the, what do you, Craigslist that? I don't know. So I Googled buy, how to go about buying bald eagles to release while I preached, but apparently buying bald eagles is frowned upon in this country. So uh, you can't do that. No exploding pulpits or anything like that. And so the reality is we like it that way. There's nothing fancy. Lower your expectations. What you'll see when you come back next week is pretty much what you're going to see today, except I probably won't be wearing my suit coat. Like that is how this thing is going to unfold. Everyone's like, you're so dressed up. I was like, I wear the jeans that were on the floor and, right, I got an iron shirt on and I pulled the suit coat off my suit. We called it Easter. So um, what you will see next week is very similar engagement day. So lower your expectations, nothing going on. Because today really is a celebration not of what we can do for Jesus, right, to demonstrate to the world what a great day this is, but instead of what God did for us. That's really the picture. The picture is what God did for us in the person of Jesus Christ, that on that day, that morning, that tomb was empty, that our God is alive, and that we have been given new life in Christ. This is the ultimate picture of what we celebrate the resurrection. Not some event that was marked by 2,000 years ago by which we all get together and say, hey, wasn't that great? But the resurrection itself is a person that Jesus himself says, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is not a moment that's marked, but it's the God that we serve and we are called to serve. And it changes how we live and see every single day of our life. So what we gather to do today is to celebrate what's already taken place. Not to give a nod to our religious roots to make sure we do something on this one singular day, but instead to say, God, you have so changed everything 
through the person of Jesus Christ, um, that we are different people. And this morning, we're going we're gonna to mark that. Um, so we're doing it a little bit different, though. I want to back up a few days. So we're going to be in the book of John, chapter 12, but I want to back up a few days from that Sunday morning. I want to move past the crucifixion, even before Thursday night, that night that Jesus broke bread and shared a meal with his disciples, moved before they washed all their feet to sometime around Wednesday or Tuesday, that last week of Jesus' life. He has come already come riding into town on the back of a baby donkey. The triumphal entry has happened. The, the crowds there had cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they laid palm branches on the ground. Jesus was the one that was foretold about, and all the crowds believed that he was going to be the one that was going to restore Israel as a political power. He was going to overthrow the Roman rule, and he was going to reestablish, reestablish Israel as a nation like David did. And they were going to be a political power again, and they had hoped that Jesus was going to be that person. And on Sunday, a week ago, they, they just went crazy. What we're going to see this week in the middle of that is we're going to catch a glimpse into sort of this intimate moment, this deeply personal moment that Jesus sort of shares with a few of his disciples about what his heart and about what his mind are truly thinking about what's going to unfold the next few days. And I think it will give us a glimpse to understand fully what Easter is about and what death and life and following Jesus um, should look like. So if you've got that Bible of yours or you've got one in the chair beside you, open up to John chapter 12. Um, chapter 20, or 12, verse 20, excuse me, and we will uh, kind of begin there this uh, Easter morning. So let's take a moment and let's pray together before we open God's Word. Lord, I thank you that um, this morning, as I was reminded at this earlier service, that we are united with believers from all over the world. That God, the single thing that unites Christian churches around this globe is that Jesus was raised from the dead. We deeply believe that. In fact, Paul says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, everything we believe is a, it's just a joke. That God, we deeply believe that it's true and it unites us with believers all over the world and huddled in small corners in China and Africa and other places, God, are, are groups just like this, celebrating this exact same reality. And so God, I, I thank you that we can be a part of that with churches up and down our street and our state and our country and all over the world. Lord, I thank you that these events that unfolded some 2,000 years ago changed the course of history forever. They are the single greatest events in all of human history. Lord, help us today to not see these as events that happened, but instead a person that changes lives. So Lord, as we look at Easter, may we look at it as truth, as gospel truth, that changes the way that we draw breath. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something this morning. Just Maybe it's easy like that. Just ask God to teach you something this morning, to instruct your heart. Pray for someone beside you or in front of you. Just get in the habit of praying for other people. I do this each week. I, I try to remind us to pray for others. Like this thing is not just about you. It's not just about me. But we want other people to encounter God. So, so pray for that, even if you think that's a little easy for us to do. Pray that, that God may move in your life, even if you don't know how to do it. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in this moment. May we gather here today, not as a special celebration, but as a deep reminder of our entire lives as a celebration of the truth of you being the truth in the person of Jesus Christ. So God, teach us this morning. We ask this in the risen and glorious name our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So do me one more favor. 
uh, one more favor before we get started. Um, for the next 20-ish minutes or whatever, just try and erase from your mind, right? Your sort of past history, experience with Easter and culturally all the things that go on and, and where you've got to be in about 30 minutes and whose lunch you're going to and when Aunt Melinda's going to show up and if she's going to bring the beans and whatever, if the ham's on too long. Just for the next moments, just say, God, just teach me, right? That will all be there. So just for the next few moments, let's try and just give the Lord what we've got, which is this sort of feeble offering that we bring together, and then just say, okay, so Lord, teach, teach my heart. So I told you what's unfolding, right? Middle of the week, Passover is happening this week, and it is a crazy place Jerusalem is. In fact, they say that the the population in Jerusalem doubled or even tripled during that week, which means it went from about... 40 or 50,000, all the way up to 100 or 120,000 people crammed in this town that's surrounded by walls. And it was just busy, packed with people. Jesus comes riding into town on the back of a baby donkey that first Sunday, and the whole week is filled with activities. And it just swells and grows and grows until Thursday and Friday when all the Passover things are happening. And the the place is just packed, and crowds are everywhere. And they've all heard about Jesus. For three years, he's been traveling around the countryside doing incredible things, teaching with incredible authority, doing things like casting out demons and feeding 5,000 and healing people, giving sight to the blind and walking on water and just doing cool, amazing stuff. And they all believed that he was going to be the one that would politically reestablish Israel as a nation, and they wanted his time. And so what we're going to see today unfold is in the middle of this week, before Thursday night where he breaks bread with his disciples, before he scrubs the manure off their feet, before he's betrayed by everyone closest to him, before he's spit upon and mocked and crucified, we're going to get this, we're going to get this tangible look into what's going on in his heart and his mind in John chapter 12. So if you've got it, go ahead and open that up, John 12 verse 20, and let's take a look at what unfolds um, this week, some 2,000 years ago. Now there, was a, some, there were some Greeks among those who went to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethesda and they, in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew to Philip, and turned told Jesus. And Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it. And the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. For where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So kind of an interesting interaction. I'm actually kind of fascinated with it. So the crowd is huge, and it's just people everywhere. And they all want to be around and encounter Jesus. And a couple of Greek people, Greek Greek guys, came to the disciples. Now, the Greeks were there for the feast too, and most likely what that meant is that they were God-fearers, which is a term that was used for non-Jewish people that came to be Jewish people. So they weren't Jews by bloodline, but they were Jewish people by religion. So a couple of Greeks that had given their life to Judaism were coming for the Passover, and they came to Philip because Philip was the only one of the disciples with a Greek name. So they came to Philip and they said, sir, we would like to see Jesus. Not we want to see you, we'd like to talk about the other disciples or whatever. We would like to see Jesus. And so Philip in turn goes to Andrew and he says, hey, Andrew, I got a couple of guys, a couple of Greek guys that would like to see Jesus. And then they both go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, there's a couple of Greek guys out there and they would like to see you. 
And then Jesus does something really odd. He just ignores them. It's almost like he doesn't pay a lick of attention to what they request. They say there's a couple of people out here that would like to see you. Would you like to spend some time with them? We fully expect Jesus, who is always involved in the lives of people, to drop everything and go engage with these couple of guys that are interested in this time. Or we at least expect him to say, hey, look, kind of a busy week. Got some stuff going on downtown. Do you mind? We'll do this a little bit later. Whatever. He doesn't. He just seems to ignore them. And he instead launches into this teaching moment with the disciples and the other disciples that may have been gathered right there. They say, hey, look, these guys would like to see you. And and Jesus looks at him and says, look, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, right? But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it. The man who hates his life in this world will gain it, right? And he basically says, whoever's going to serve me must follow me. For where I am, my servant will also be. God will honor the one who serves me, which has nothing to do with their request. And I find this really interesting. Because in order to understand, right, what's really going on, we've got to move ourselves down to verse 27, and then I'm going to, I'm going to come back up. Because verse 27 to me is a real kind of glimpse into the intimacy of the heartbeat of Jesus at this moment. And it says this, it looks at those disciples and he basically says, now my heart is troubled. The word there is actually anguish. So my heart is anguished. Anguish carries this connotation of pain, right? My heart is troubled. It is anguished. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Here's the thing. Jesus knew exactly what was going to unfold here, right? He was God in the flesh. He knew that in the next few days, he would be put to death by the most horrific instrument of human torture and humiliation ever devised. That he was going to die a brutal death, a death of suffocation and pain. And he knew that. And so the short answer is, well, Jesus' heart, of course, is troubled because he knew that he was going to die a painful death. I mean, if you and I knew that in three days that was what was going to happen for us, your heart would be anguished as well, right? That's the simple answer. That's what's troubling Jesus' heart. But there's actually something much bigger at play. And it's a theological concept that we have to understand that surrounds the cross. Because, see, Jesus didn't just die for our sins. The Bible tells us that Jesus actually became sin for us. There's a big difference. Paul puts it this way. He says, for God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, there is a divine substitution that takes place on the cross. That we get God's righteousness and Jesus gets our sinfulness. That all of our broken, sinful, dirty, disastrous lives, Jesus gets that and bears the full wrath of God that we deserve. And what do we get? We get God's beautiful, glorious grace and righteousness. See, Jesus' heart wasn't troubled because he was going to die. Surely that was part of it, but that wasn't all of it. Jesus' heart was deeply anguished and troubled because in a few days, he was going to take the full wrath of what you and I deserved. He was going to most literally become sin for you and I. That in his death, Jesus became sin for you. Now, this is really complicated for us to really deeply grasp because we have been raised in our Christian subculture with the phrase, Jesus died for my sins. Certainly it's true. 
It is a hallmark way of approaching Good Friday. It is a hallmark way of approaching the crucifixion. It is a hallmark way of approaching Easter. Jesus died for my sins. Thank you, Jesus. And that's how we approach the crucifixion. He did something that I couldn't, and I'm grateful. Thank you for doing that for me. I appreciate it. Almost as if in that same nonchalant way, when someone in your life does something for you that makes your life a little easier, you say thank you. Hey, I went ahead and put away your uh, clothes. Your roommate says, thank you for doing that. That was really appreciated. We almost approach the crucifixion with that sort of thank you, Jesus, for doing that for me. But theologically, there's something so much deeper at play, which is Jesus took what you deserve, the deep wrath of God because of our sinful, broken lives. And he not only died for it, but became it. And you and me, what did we get? We got what we didn't deserve. We got God's beautiful righteousness. That God, before the creation of the world, ordained this divine substitution that would take place, of which you get God's beautiful glory, and Jesus gets your deep sin and God's wrath. You know how hard it is to really wrap your mind around that? I mean, think about how that would play out in your life in another sense. What if you deserve deep, deep punishment, and instead someone beloved in your life got that instead of you? They did nothing, and they got punished deeply. Maybe it cost them their freedom. Maybe it cost them the, your life, and what you got was honor and glory. Could you sit with that? Could you sit watching your child or your spouse or someone you love do and pay what is you what you deserved? maybe with their own life and freedom, all the while while you sat and people heaped praise and glory and honor. It doesn't make sense. It wouldn't sit well. But this is exactly what transpires with the cross, that you get God's righteousness. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have to understand this before you can understand Easter, before you can understand the crucifixion, before you can understand the rest of this text, that in death Jesus became sin for you. Because it adds a level of power to what is about to unfold. It was not a token death of which we give a couple of nods a few times a year and say thank you in our prayer life. It was a world-altering substitution in which you did nothing and God took your pain and punishment and put it upon Christ. And you got his glory and his beauty and his righteousness. And you did nothing to deserve it. And you got all that. So there's this... This vine substitution that in sin, right, in death, Christ became sin for us. So we keep that in the back of our minds. And we're going to learn a couple of things about death here before we kind of jump into some, some great stuff. We learn in verses 23, kind of through 26, that there's a couple of things that happen in death. In death, death brings life. But in death, right, through Jesus, we have life. That's kind of the picture of what Easter is. Like, God takes death, human death, and he resurrects life from it. That Jesus conquered death through the cross, was raised from the dead, and that we have life. It's really why we gather here. It's not a surprise to anyone. We have death, or we have life through Jesus' death on the cross, that he has conquered once and for all sin and death, and he has been raised from the dead. The resurrection is evidence that God has conquered death and given us life in Christ. It is the essential tenet of salvation, that if we are going to have saving life in Christ, we have to believe that God raised him from the dead. It's why we celebrate Easter, right? It's the thing that separates Christianity from every world religion in the world, that God is not dead, he is alive, right? If we just have death on the cross, 
right? We have no victory over death. Jesus is just someone that died. Paul says the resurrection is what gives life. Jesus, anybody can say they died for sin, but God conquered that death through the resurrection. So we know that through in death, through death, Jesus' death, we have life. But something transpires in this interaction. So Peter and, or Philip and Andrew come to Jesus and they say, hey, these guys want to talk to you. And Jesus says, listen, my heart is deeply sorrowed, deeply anguished, deeply troubled. And they just still don't get why. But he says that. And in that kind of conversation, he says this. He says, look, the hour has come for me to be glorified. All right? In other words, something significant is going to happen. What the world is going to try and throw on me as disgrace and humiliation is actually glorifying, which is fascinating. You know what's going to happen on the cross? People are going to walk by and they're going to hurl unimaginable insults. In fact, it tells us that they spit on him. We don't really get how awful that was kind of publicly in our culture, but in a Middle Eastern culture, spitting on someone is the most detestable act. They're going to spit upon him. They're going to beat him. They're going to mock him. And Jesus calls that his glorification, right? I'm going to be glorified in those despisable moments because God is going to give us victory over that. So he says, look, this is about to happen, but I'm going to tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So Jesus is basically talking about his own life here. He's saying, listen, unless a kernel of wheat dies, it's just a kernel of wheat. Any of you that have ever been to Kansas will know, or you've ever been driven through wheat fields, you will know that the head, the stalk, the kernel of wheat is about this big, and it has about 200 seeds wrapped up in there. And the only way that seed works, like any other seed, is if it dies, that kernel opens, and those seeds are scattered, right? So he's basically saying, look, through my death, life will come, and it will multiply, and it will be unimaginable. Unless that kernel of wheat dies, it's only one seed, but when it dies, it will produce so much more, is what he's getting at, right? So through Jesus' death, we have life. But he takes it one step further. He looks at Andrew and Philip, and he says, now listen to this, all right? He says, the man, the person who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The man who loves his life will lose it, but he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He basically turns the conversation back to these guys, and he's saying, I'm going to die. That is going to be what brings about life. However, however, this is also about your death. And the call of a Christ follower is actually death to self. We always think that following Jesus means that I pick up all my stuff and I just go where Jesus goes, or I say I'm a Jesus follower, I'm a Christian. But really the essence of the gospel is death to self. That when we follow Christ, we are called to come and die, to lay down all of our own desires, all of our own wants, all of my own needs, all of my own desire for the material, for the selfish, for the things, for the me, for this, for me, honor, glory, whatever it is, and die to it. I no longer want what would be right for me, but God, I want what honors you. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, listen, if you want your life in this world, you will lose it. That means if you want things for you, your own glory, your own honor, your own sake, you are found, your identity in this world, you will lose it. Literally talking spiritually, you will lose your life. But if you hate your life in this world, and he's not talking about self-hatred, he's actually playing the words love and hate off each other. But if in the opposite of love, if you hate your life in this world to the point where it despises you, 
the selfishness that courses through our veins, right? You die to your own self and desires, you will find life. Because the call of a Christ follower is death to self. Now, it's really interesting that he's saying this to, to Philip and Andrew and those disciples because he's only got a few more days with these, these folks. And he's giving them these deep truths. He's going, listen, I'm about to be glorified. I am going to die. Life will come from my death. But for you, you've got to be willing to die to yourself. Which is the opposite of how all of, all of us live, right? We are driven by our desire to promote ourselves. For people to recognize us, to see us. Our churches are even like that, right? We walk in the doors of a church and we say, what do you have to offer me? What's your singles program like? What are your kids like? Where's the coffee shop, the rock climbing wall, whatever. Like we, what do you have to offer me so that I'll stay? And churches fight and clamor over the attendance of believers that they're just stealing from each other. It's ridiculous because we're driven by our me desire. The call of a true Christ follower is what Jesus is saying is one that will come and die. The most difficult thing you will ever do in your life, and it's not a one-time thing, it's a daily thing, is to die to yourself. To let go of your control, to let go of your desires and say, Jesus, not what I want, but what, what you want, right? Death to self. So we see this idea that Jesus became sin for us, and that in that we are called to understand that death brings life. And death brings life in Christ, and death to myself brings true life in Jesus. He goes on to basically change the subject, but it's not really a change. It's more of a progression. And he says this, so are you getting what I'm saying? He says, then whoever serves me must follow me. For where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So whoever serves me must follow me. It's actually a progression. He's saying, listen. My death will be substituted for yours. You will get my glory, and I will get the wrath of God. And that will call us to understand that my death will bring about life. And if you surrender your heart to mine, you die to yourself, it will push you to a place where you say, I want to serve Jesus. Like, I want to follow Jesus, right? Not the other way around. We don't one day wake up and say, I'll serve Jesus. I probably want to know this guy. Our knowing Jesus pushes us to a place where we say, I want to be a follower of his. And he basically looks at Philip and Andrew and he says, if you're going to serve me, right, you must follow me. Not if you follow me, you'll serve me. He says, you're going to serve me, you're going to follow me. Now, most of us, if I ask you this question, hey, are you willing to serve Jesus? Everybody in this room, without exception, because you wouldn't want to be the person that didn't say it out loud, would say, absolutely, of course, of course. I absolutely would love to serve Jesus. Because we can define that on our own terms. Yep, I will sign up with the hospitality team. I'll get here a little bit early. I'll set up a few chairs. Maybe if I get lucky, we'll get out early. I'll go down to the city rescue mission on Thanksgiving and uh, Christmas, and we'll do a few things down there. We'll give a couple of presents to some needy kids. We'll serve Jesus. We'll do some of those things. Maybe if our church has a service project, maybe I'll go help build a house for someone that can't uh, do that. And I give a little bit of money when the church goes on a trip somewhere. And, and so, yeah, man, of course I'll serve Jesus. Because in our mindset, serving Jesus is doing things for Jesus. It's how we equate serving. I will serve Jesus by doing stuff for Jesus because I feel a little bit better about the opulence in my own life when I do that. So I can feel a little bit better about how much time and money and energy I spend on me if I give a head nod to my religious call to do something for somebody else. So serving Jesus just simply becomes an extension of doing things for Jesus. It's not really what Jesus is saying here at all. And he's saying it to a couple of guys who have already given their entire lives away to follow him. He actually says that whoever will serve me 
must also follow me. Which, of course, begs the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And he follows that up with, where I am, my servant will also be. So where is Jesus? That's the big question. Where is Jesus? Well, there's about four weeks worth of answers here, but the quick kind of look at it is this. You know, where is Jesus engaged emotionally and physically and spiritually? Because emotionally, he's tied to people. We know that. Jesus has a heartbeat for people. He grieves with them. When Mary and Martha lost their brother Lazarus, John 11, he weeps with them, right? Jesus' heart breaks for even those that he kind of is in constant disagreement with. He weeps over Israel's disobedience, right? Jesus had a heartbeat for people. He engaged with people from an emotional standpoint that other people wouldn't do. They wouldn't give them the time of day, and Jesus would engage in them. Remember the woman that was caught in adultery? Right, right in front of all those men about to stone her. And he looks at them all and he says, hey, who of you has never sinned before? Then go ahead and throw that rock. And they all walk away and she's standing there left alone with Jesus. And he looks at her and he says, daughter, daughter. He calls this woman who has been engaging in this activity that the rest of the world would call detestable. He calls her his child. Don't sin anymore. Go with it. Jesus emotionally engaged with people. Physically, we know that, right? I mean, that's the, the answer we're all, he, he traipsed right through Samaria where nobody else would go. He walked right over to that, that deaf, mute person that no one else would talk to who was an outcast on the side of the road. And he took his own fingers and he stuck them in the guy's ears, basically saying, look, where the world tells you you're broken, I will tell you you're loved. He spits on his hand and he touches the guy's tongue. Jesus touched lepers and people that the rest of the world wouldn't even get near. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. He physically engaged with people. So emotionally and physical, physically, Jesus is engaging with a part of the world that nobody else would do. And he says, whoever serves me must follow me. For where I am, my servant will be. You want to really understand what it means to serve Jesus? We've got to be willing to be in the places where he is. But most of us, including myself, don't like that. We want to serve Jesus from our seat from our space, from our checkbook, from our whatever. We get frustrated with people. We don't want to have to keep engaging them. We don't want to engage the poor outside of what kind of doesn't interrupt our lives. We don't want to be uncomfortable. Well, where was Jesus spiritually? This, this passage gives it away. His heartbeat was the deep obedience. Think about that last section where he says, listen, my heart is troubled. And what am I supposed to say? Right? What shall I say? Right? Save me from this hour, Father? No way. For this very reason I came. Father, be glorified or glorify your name. He looks at Philip and Andrew and he says, you don't even have a clue what's about to happen. My heart is so deeply troubled. And what am I actually supposed to say? God, don't let me do this. Because he's saying, that's what the human side of me wants to scream. Like, save me from this agony, not just of the cross, but of your deep wrath. And he said, what am I supposed to do? Say that? No way. For this very hour is why I came in the first place. So, Father, be glorified. Spiritually, Jesus was about obedience. And we beg and plead with God when life gets a little uncomfortable. Life gets a little challenging, and we beg and plead with God to take it away. Jesus doesn't beg God to take any of this away. He just basically says, this is why I'm here, so be glorified. What if in your life and in your difficulty and in your circumstance, you were able to say, God, don't just remove this from me, but be glorified in whatever it is. 
Like, if this is why you're having me walk through this struggle, then so be it. Be glorified in it. Serving Jesus, following Jesus, is about being where he is. Not just eyeballing him from a distance. Giving a nod a couple of times a year when we should show up and do some religious things. Do you see the progression that's unfolding? We understand that in his death, Jesus substitutes. He becomes sin for us. And that death brings life. Jesus' death brings life to the resurrection. And when we die to ourselves, following Christ, we truly die to ourselves. It should push us to a place that says, Jesus, I want to follow you. And wanting to follow Jesus should say, I want to serve you. And where you are, I want to be. And then what happens? In the verse 28, it says, my father will honor the one who serves him. And I find this fascinating because I don't think it's just a call for the individual. I mean, as a church, we are a gathered group of individuals. We are the ecclesia, which is the assembly of people. Not this building, this thing. We are the assembly of people. And I deeply believe that this is our call. That we are called to serve and follow Jesus in this way. To die to our own desires. To understand that a successful church looks like X, Y, and Z. And that we should do this. And we should be striving for this. And that we walk into a place and say, give me what I need or I'm going somewhere else. What if as a church, we die to our own desires and say, how do we exist outside of there so that people can know this resurrected truth and have the life change that is alterable? What if that was our only heartbeat? God, not about me, but about you being And if I never get what I want, so be it. What if somebody else had an encounter with you that changed them forever? That's what I want us to be about. It should be our call, deeply together, right? That God will honor the one who serves him. What does it mean to be honored by God? It doesn't mean places of recognition. It actually means places of service. It means unrecognizable lives. It means people buried in struggle and difficulty. A lot of times we hear a gospel preach that says, hey, if you truly do what Jesus has for you, he's going to reward you with stuff and things. It's prosperity. It says, hey, you're faithful. God is going to return that and great stuff for you. Ask any of the disciples and the apostles if that's true. Most of them died horrific deaths, went through deeply discouraging things, shipwrecked, broken, empty, but full of life. Because honor from God not involve a return from God, but it it results in God's blessing and faithfulness and true, abundant life. John 10.10 says that Jesus came so that we might have full life, abundant life here on earth, and the promise of eternal life in heaven. You know what the reward is for someone that served Jesus in this way? It's true life here on earth. It's fullness even when we should be empty. It's compassion when we should be angry. It's joy when we should be steeped in sorrow. It's the honor that comes from God that he gives us a life that we were called to. Not that we want, but that comes from him. If we live the life we want, we will always be empty and wanting and longing for more. When we begin to follow Jesus in this way, he replaces our desires for his. And everything changes. You see, Easter isn't an event that we come and just worship and celebrate and throw some confetti around. Easter is a moment that changes everything. That every breath we draw should be altered by this. That death brings life and that life changes us through Christ. That every moment we gather should be a celebration of Easter. And it's a great reminder that we come here together on this Sunday and do that. Don't get me wrong, like it's important. But it shouldn't change 
how we worship next Sunday. Everything hinges on this truth. Death brings life. The question is, how are you going to live? And how are we going to